Hello, this is Eric Topol with Ground Truce, and I'm so thrilled to have David Liu with me today uh, from Broad Institute, Harvard, HHMI investigator. David was here visiting at Scripps Research uh, in the spring, gave an incredible talk, which I'll put a link to. We're not going to try to go over all that stuff today, but what a time to be able to get to talk with you about what's happening, David. So welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm uh, honored to be here. Well, you know, the recent UK approval of the first genome editing, after all the years that you put into this, along with many other colleagues around the world, is pretty extraordinary. Maybe you can just give us a sense of that, that threshold that's crossed with the sickle cell and beta thalassemia, also uh, imminently likely to be getting that same uh, approval here in the U.S. Right. It, I mean, it is a, a, a huge moment. Uh, for the field, for science, for medicine. Uh, and just to be clear and to give credit where credit is due, I had nothing to do with the discovery or development of CRISPR-Cas9 as a therapeutic, which is um, uh, what this initial uh, gene editing CRISPR drug is. Uh, but of course, the, the, the field has built on the work of many scientists with respect to CRISPR-Cas9, including uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna and George Church and Fun John and Virgis Sixness and many, many others. Um, but it it is, uh, a, I think, surprisingly rapid um, milestone in a long decades-old effort to begin to uh, take some control over our genetic features by changing DNA sequences of our choosing into sequences that we believe will offer some therapeutic benefit. So this initial uh, drug is the CRISPR therapeutics vertex drug. Now we can say it's actually a drug, approved drug, uh, which is a CRISPR-Cas9 nuclease programmed to cut a DNA sequence that is involved in silencing fetal hem hemoglobin genes. And uh, as you know, when you cut DNA, you primarily uh, disrupt the sequence that you cut. And so if you disrupt the, uh, the DNA sequence that is required for silencing your backup sort of fetal hemoglobin genes, uh, then they can um, uh, reawaken and serve as a way to compensate for defective adult hemoglobin genes like the defective sickle cell alleles that sickle cell anemia patients have. And so that's the scientific basis of, of this initial drug. So um, as you aptly put, frame this, this is an outgrowth of about a decade's work. And it was using a somewhat constrained rudimentary form of editing. And your work has taken this field uh, considerably further with base uh, prime editing, whereby you're not just making a double strand cut, you're doing NICs. And maybe you can help us understand um, this kind of next phase where you can, you have more things, ways you can intervene in the genome right. uh, than was uh, possible through the original Cas9 nucleus. Right. So uh, gene editing is actually a several decades old field. It just didn't quite become as popular as it is now until the discovery of, of CRISPR nucleases, uh, which are just much easier to reprogram than the previous uh, 
programmable zinc finger or tail nucleases, for example. So, you know, the first um, class of gene editing agents are all nuclease enzymes, meaning enzymes that uh, take a piece of DNA, a chromosome, and literally cut it, breaking it, breaking the DNA double helix and cutting the chromosome into two pieces. Uh, so when the cell sees that double-strand DNA break, it responds by trying to get the broken ends of the chromosome back together. And we think that most of the time, maybe 90% of the time, that end joining is perfect. It just regenerates the starting sequence. But if it regenerates the starting sequence perfectly and the nuclease is still around, then it can just cut the rejoined sequence again. So this cycle of cutting and rejoining and cutting and rejoining continues over and over until the rejoining makes a mistake that changes the DNA sequence at the cut site. Because when those mistakes accumulate to a point that the, the nuclease no longer recognizes the altered sequence, then it's a dead-end product. That's how you end up with these disrupted genes that result from cutting a target DNA sequence with a nuclease like CRISPR-Cas9. So CRISPR-Cas9 and other nucleases are very useful for disrupting genes. But one of their biggest downsides is in the cells that are most relevant to medicine, to human therapy, uh, like the cells that are in your body right now, um, you can't really control the sequence of DNA that comes out of this process. When you cut a DNA double helix inside of a human cell, and allow this cutting and rejoining process to take place over and over again until you get these mistakes. Those mistakes are generally mixtures of insertions and deletions that we can't control. Uh, they are usually disruptive to a gene, so that can be very useful when you're trying to, to disrupt the function of a gene, like the, the genes that are involved in silencing fetal hemoglobin. But if you want to precisely fix a mutation that causes a genetic disease and convert it, for example, back into a healthy DNA sequence, uh, that's very hard to do in a patient using DNA cutting scissors. Because the scissors themselves, of course, don't include any information that allows you to control um, what sequence comes out of that repair process. You can add a DNA template to this cutting process uh, in a process called HDR, or homology-directed repair. And sometimes that template will end up replacing the DNA sequence around the cut site. But unfortunately, we now know that that HDR process is very inefficient in most of the types of cells that are relevant for human therapy. And that explains why, if you look at the 50-plus uh, nuclease gene editing clinical trials that are underway or have taken place, uh, all but one um, use uh, nucleases for gene disruption rather than for gene correction. And so that's really what inspired us to develop base editing in 2016 and then prime editing in 2019. Uh, these are methods that allow you to change a DNA sequence of your choosing into a different sequence of your choosing, where you get to specify the sequence that comes out of the editing process. And that means you can, uh, for the first time in a general way, programmably change uh, a DNA sequence, a mutation that causes a genetic disease, for example, into a healthy sequence, back into the normal, the so-called wild-type sequence, for example. Uh, 
So base editors work by actually performing chemistry on an individual DNA base, rearranging the atoms of that base to become a different base. Uh, so base editors can efficiently and robustly change A's into G's, G's into A's, T's into C's, or C's into T's, those four changes. And those four changes, for interesting biochemical reasons, turn out to be four of the most common ways that our DNA mutates to cause disease. Um, so base editors can be used and have been used in animals and now in six clinical trials uh, to treat a wide variety of, of diseases, including high cholesterol and sickle cell disease and uh, T-cell leukemia, for example. Um, and then in uh, prime editors, we developed uh, a few years later to try to address the types of changes in our genomes that cause genetic disease that can't be fixed with a base editor. For example, you can't use a base editor to efficiently and selectively change an A into a T. Um, you can't use a base editor to perform an insertion of missing DNA letters, uh, like the three missing letters, CTT, that's the most common cause of cystic fibrosis accounting for maybe 70% of cystic fibrosis patients. Um, you can't use a base editor to insert missing DNA letters, like the missing TATC, that is the most common cause of Tay-Sachs disease. Uh, so we developed prime editors uh, as a third gene editing technology to complement nucleases and base editors. And prime editors work by yet another mechanism. They don't, again, they don't cut the DNA double helix, at least they don't... Uh, cause that as the required mechanism of editing. Uh, they don't uh, perform chemistry on an individual base. Instead, prime editors take a target DNA sequence and then write a new DNA sequence onto the end of one of the DNA strands and then sort of help the cell navigate the DNA repair processes to have that newly written DNA sequence replace the original DNA sequence. And in the process, it's sort of true search and replace gene editing. So you can basically take any DNA sequence of up to now hundreds of base pairs and replace it with any other sequence of your choosing of up to hundreds of base pairs. And if you um, integrate uh, prime editing with other enzymes like recombinases, you can actually perform whole gene integration of five or 10,000 base pairs, for example, this way. So, uh, so prime editing's hallmark is really its, its versatility. And even though it's the newest of the three ways that have been robustly used to edit mammalian cells and rescued animal models of genetic disease, uh, it is uh, arguably the most versatile by, by far. Right. Well, in fact, um, if you just go back to the sickle cell story, as you laid out, the Cas9 nucleus that's now uh, going into commercial approval in the UK, imminently in the US, is, is more of a blunt instrument of disruption. It's it's indirect. It's not getting to the actual genetic genomic defect, whereas uh, you can do that now with these more uh, refined tools, uh, these right. new, uh, and I think that's a very important step forward. And that is one part of the, some major contributions you've made. Of course, there's many. Um, one of the things, of course, that's uh, been a, a challenge in the field is delivery 
uh, whereby the, we'd like to get this editing done in many parts of the body. And of course, it's easy, perhaps, I, I put that in quotes, easy, when you're taking blood out and you're going to edit those cells and then put it back in. But when you want to edit uh, the liver or the heart or the brain, uh, it gets more challenging. Now, you did touch on one recent report, uh, and this is, of course, the people with severe familial hypercholesterolemia, the carriers that have LDL cholesterol, you know, several hundred and uh, often don't respond to even everything we have on the shelf today. And there were, there were 10 people with this condition that was reported um, just a few weeks ago. Um, So that's a big step forward because so much of this, of course, has not been in patients. What were your thoughts um, on that uh, advance? Yeah, Yeah, that was a, a, also a very exciting milestone. Um, so that clinical trial was led by scientists at Verve Therapeutics and Beam Therapeutics, and it was the first clinical readout of an in vivo base editing clinical trial. There was previously, at the end of 2022, the first clinical readout of an ex vivo base editing clinical trial using CAR T-cells ex vivo, triply base edited to treat uh, T-cell leukemia in uh, pediatric patients in the UK. Uh, but as you point out, there are only a small fraction of the uh, of the full range of diseases that we'd like to treat with gene editing and the, the types of cells we'd like to edit that can be edited outside of the body and then transplanted back into the body, so-called ex vivo editing. Basically, you can do this with cells of some kind of blood lineage, uh, hematopoietic stem cells, T cells, uh, and really not much else um, in terms of editing outside the body and then putting back into the body. Uh, as you point out, no one's going to do that with the brain or the heart anytime soon. Uh, so uh, what was very exciting about the, the Verve Beam uh, clinical trial is that uh, Verve sought to disrupt the function of PCSK9, a storied gene, um, Uh, validated by human genetics, because there are humans that naturally have mutations in PCSK9, and they tend to have much lower incidences of heart disease uh, because their LDL, so-called bad cholesterol, is uh, much lower than it would otherwise be without those mutations. So Verve set out to simply uh, disrupt PCSK9 through gene editing. They didn't care whether they used a nuclease or a base editor, So they compared side by side the results of disrupting PCSK9 with Cas9 nuclease versus disrupting it by installing a precise single letter base edit using an adenine base editor. And they actually concluded that the base editor gave them higher efficacy and fewer unwanted uh, consequences. And so they went with the base editor. So the clinical trial that just read out were patients treated in New Zealand Uh, in which they were given a lipid nanoparticle mRNA uh, complex of an adenine base editor programmed with a guide RNA to install a specific A to G mutation in a splice site in PCSK9 that inactivates the, the, the gene so that it can no longer make functional PCSK9 protein. And the exciting uh, result that read out was that Um, In patients that received this uh, base editor, a single intravenous injection 
of the base editor lipid nanoparticle complex. Uh, as you know, lipid nanoparticles very efficiently go to the liver uh, in most cases. Uh, PCSK9 uh, was edited in the liver, and the result was, was substantial reduction in uh, LDL cholesterol levels in these patients. Uh, and the, the hope and the anticipation is that that one-time treatment should be durable, should be more or less permanent in these patients. Uh, and I think uh, while the, the patients who are at highest risk of coronary artery disease because of their um, genetics that give them absurdly high LDL cholesterol levels, th that makes the most sense to go after those patients first because they are at extremely high risk of heart attacks and, and strokes. Uh, if, if the treatment proves to be efficacious and safe, uh, then I think it's tempting to speculate that a larger and larger population of people who would benefit from having lower LDL cholesterol levels, which is probably most people, uh, that they would also be candidates for, for this kind of therapy. Yeah, no, it's actually pretty striking how that could be achieved. And I know in the primates that were done prior to the, the people in New Zealand, there was a very durable effect that went on well over you know, I think a year or, or, or even two years. So yeah, yeah that's no, right. really, really promising. So now that gets us to a couple of things. Um, one of them is the potential for off target effects. Uh, as you've gotten more and more with these tools to be so precise, uh, is the is the concern that you could have um, off target effects just completely um, uh, of course, uh, inadvertent, but um, potential for other downstream in time, uh, known unknowns, if you will. What sure. are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I have many thoughts on on this issue. It's it's very important. The FDA and regulatory bodies are right to be very conservative about off-target editing because we anticipate those off-targets will be permanent. Those off-target edits will be permanent. And so we, we definitely have a responsibility to minimize um, adding to the mutational burden that all humans have as a function of existing on this planet, eating what we eat, being bombarded by cosmic rays and sunlight and everything else. Um, but I think it's also important to put off-target editing into some context. Um, one context is I think virtually every substance we've ever put into a person, including just about every medicine we've ever put into a person, has off-target effects, uh, meaning um, modulates the function of biological molecules other than the intended target. Of course, the stakes are higher when those are gene editing agents because those modifications can be permanent. Um, I think most uh, off-target edits are very likely to have no consequence because most of our genome, if you mutate in the kinds of small ways, like making an individual base pair change for a base editor, um, are likely to have no consequence. We sort of already know this because we can measure the mutational burden that we all face as a function of living. Uh, and it's measurable. It's, it's, it's low, but measurable. Um, I've, I've read some papers that estimate that um, of the roughly 27 trillion cells in an adult person, that there are billions and possibly hundreds of billions of mutations that accumulate every day in those 27 trillion cells. So our genomes are not quite the static vaults that we'd like to think that they are. 
and of course, we have already purposefully given life-extending medicines to patients that work primarily by randomly mutating their genomes. These are chemotherapeutic agents that we give to cancer patients. Uh, so I think that um, history of giving chemotherapeutic agents, even though we know those agents will mess up the genomes of these patients and potentially cause cancer far later down the road, demonstrates that there are risk-benefit situations where uh, the calculus favors treatment, even if you know you are causing mutations in the genome, if the condition that the patient faces and their prognosis is sufficiently grave. Um, all that said, as, as I mentioned, uh, uh, we don't want to add to the mutational burden of, of these patients in any clinically relevant way. So I think it is appropriate that uh, the early uh, gene editing clinical candidates that are in trials or approved now uh, are going undergoing lots and lots of scrutiny. Um, of course, doing an off-target analysis in an animal is of limited value because the animal's genome is quite different than the human genome, so the off-targets won't align. Uh, but doing off-target analyses in human cells and then following up these patients for a long time to, uh, to confirm, hopefully, that uh, there isn't clinical evidence of, of uh, quality of life or lifespan uh, deterioration caused by off-target editing. Uh, that's all very, very uh, important. Um, I also think that uh, people may not fully appreciate that on-target editing consequences uh, also need to be examined and arguably examined with um, even more urgency than, than off-target uh, edits. Because when you are cutting uh, a chromosome at a target site with a nucleus, for example, you generate a complex mixture of different uh, products, of different DNA sequences that come out. And the more sequences you sequence, the more different products you realize are generated. And I don't think it's it's uh, become routine to try to uh, force the, the uh, companies, the, the clinical groups that are running these trials to characterize, you know, the top 1,000 on-target products for their biological consequence. That would be sort of impractical to do and would probably slow down greatly uh, the benefit of these uh, early nuclease clinical trials for patients. Uh, but those are actually the products that are generated with much higher frequency typically than the off-target edits. Mm. That's part of why uh, I think it makes more sense from a clinical safety perspective to to uh, use uh, more precise gene editing methods like base editing and prime editing, where we know the products that are generated uh, are mostly the products that we want, are not uncontrolled mixtures of, of different deletion and insertion products. Uh, so I think uh, paying uh, special attention to the on-target uh, products, which you know are generated typically 70 to 100% of the time, as opposed to the off-targets, which may be generated at a 0.1 to 1% level and and usually not that many at that level once it reaches uh, a clinical candidate um, I think that's all uh, important to do uh, you've made a lot of great points there and thanks for putting it in perspective um, well let's go on to the uh, delivery issue uh, you mentioned nanoparticles uh, viral vectors and then you've come up with um, 
small virus-like, uh, neutered viruses, if you will. Um, I think a company envelope uh, that you've um, created to push on that uh, potential. What are your thoughts about uh, where we stand um, since you've become uh, a force for coming up with much better editing? How about much better and more diverse uh, delivery throughout the body? What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, great, uh, great question. I, I think one of the, the legacies of gene editing is and will be that it inspired many more scientists to work hard on macromolecular delivery technologies. All of these gene editing agents are macromolecules, meaning they're proteins and or nucleic acids. None of them are small molecules that you can just pop a pill and swallow. So they all require special technologies to uh, transfer the gene editing agent from outside of the cell into the cell. And uh, the, the fact that taking control of our genetic features uh, has become such a, a, a popular aspiration of medicine uh, means that there's a lot of scientists as measured most importantly by the young scientists, by the graduate students and the postdocs and the young professors um, of which I'm no longer one, sadly, uh, uh, who have decided that they're going to devote a big part of their program to, to delivery. So, you know, you summarized many of the, of the clinically relevant, clinically validated delivery technologies already. Um, somewhat sadly, because if there were a hundred of these technologies, you probably wouldn't need to ask this question, but, uh, we have lipid nanoparticles that are particularly good at develop at delivering messenger RNA. Um, that was used to deliver the COVID vaccine into uh, billions of people now. Also used to deliver, uh, for example, the adenine base editor mRNA into the livers of those hypercholesterolemia patients in the Verve Beam clinical trial. Um, uh, so, so that's uh, uh, those lipid nanoparticles are very well matched for gene editing delivery, as long as it's liver, and uh, they also are are particularly well-matched because they, their effect is transient. Uh, they cause a burst of gene editing agents to be produced in the liver, and then they go away. Um, the gene editing agents can't persist. Uh, they can't integrate into the genome, uh, despite what uh, some conspiracy theorists might worry about. Um, not that you've had any encounter with any of those people, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's actually what you want. For a gene editing agent, you ideally want a delivery method that exposes the cell only for the shortest amount of time needed to make the on-target edit at the desired level. And then you want the gene editing agent to disappear and never come back because it shouldn't need to. DNA edits to our genome for durable cells should be permanent. Um, so, uh, so that's one method. And then there are, are a variety of other methods that researchers have used to deliver to other cells but um, they each carry some trade-offs. So if you're trying to edit hematopoietic stem cells, you can take them out of the body. Once they're out of the body, you have many more methods you can use to deliver uh, efficiently into them. You can electroporate uh, messenger RNA or even uh, ribonuclear proteins. Uh, you can treat with lipids or viruses. You can edit and then put them back into the body. But as you already mentioned, uh, that's sort of a unique feature of blood cells that isn't uh, applicable to the heart or the brain, for example, or the eyes. 
Um, so then that brings us to viral vectors. There are a variety of, of clinically validated viral methods for delivery. AAV, adeno-associated virus, is probably the most diverse, most relevant, and one of the best tolerated uh, viral delivery methods. Uh, the beauty of AAV is that uh, it can deliver to a variety of tissues. Um, AAV can deliver into um, spinal cord neurons, for example, into retinal cells, uh, into the heart, um, uh, into the liver, um, uh, into a few other tissues as well. Uh, and, uh, and that diversity of being able to choose AAV capsids that are known to get into the types of tissues that you're trying to target is a great strength of, of that approach. One of the downsides of AAV for gene editing agents is that uh, their delivery tends to be fairly durable. You can uh, engineer AAVs into next generation capsids that um, sort of get rid of themselves or the gene editing agents get rid of themselves. Uh, but classic AAV tends to stay around in patients for a long time, at least months, for example, and, and possibly years. Um, uh, we also don't um, yet have a good way, clinically validated way of redosing AAV. And once you administer um, high titer, uh, high doses of AAV in a patient, that tends to provoke uh, high titer neutralizing antibodies against those AAVs, making it difficult to then come back, you know, six months or a year later and dose again with an AAV. Um, so researchers are on the bright side, uh, have become very good at, at engineering and evolving in the laboratory next generation AAVs that can go to greater diversity mm -hmm. of tissues that can be more potent. Potency is important because if you can back off the dose, uh, maybe you, you can get around some of these uh, uh, immunogenicity issues. Um, and, and I think we will see a renaissance with AAV that will further broaden its, its clinical scope, even though I appreciate that um, the decisions by a couple large pharma companies to uh, sort of pull out of using AAV for gene therapy um, uh, seemed to cause people to, I think, prematurely conclude that you know, AAV has fallen out of favor. I think for gene therapy, it's quite different than gene editing. Gene therapy meaning you are delivering a healthy copy of the gene and you need to keep that mm. healthy copy of the gene in the patient for the rest of the patient's life. Um, that's quite different than gene editing where you just need the edit to take place over, you know, days to weeks. And then if it, and then you want the editing agent to actually go away and you never right. want to come back. Right. Uh, uh, I think AAV uh, will uh, used for, to deliver gene editing agents will avoid some of the, the clinical challenges like how do we redose uh, because you shouldn't need to redose if if the gene editing uh, clinical trial proceeds as you hope. And then uh, you mentioned these virus-like particles. So uh, we became interested in virus-like particles, as other labs have, uh, because they offer some of the best strengths of non-viral and viral approaches. Uh, like non-viral approaches, such as LNPs, uh, they deliver the transient form of a gene editing agent. In fact, they can deliver the, the fully made, fully assembled protein RNA complex of a base editor or a prime editor or a CRISPR nuclease 
um, so in its final form. And that means the uh, exposure of the cell to the editing agent is minimized. You can um, treat with these virus-like particles, deliver the protein form of these gene editing agents, um, allow the on-target um, uh, site to get edited. And then since the half-life of these proteins tends to be very small, roughly 24 hours, for example, uh, you know, by a week later, there should be very little of the material left in, uh, in the animal or prospectively in, in the patient. Um, virus-like particles, as you call them neutered viruses, they lack viral DNA or RNA. They don't have the ability to, uh, to integrate a virus's genome into the human genome, which can cause some undesired consequences. Uh, they don't randomly um, uh, introduce DNA uh, into our genomes, therefore. And, uh, and they, they disappear uh, more transiently than viruses like AAV or adenoviruses or other kinds of lentiviruses that are, have been used in the clinic. Uh, so these virus-like particles or VLPs offer really some of the, the best strengths on paper, at least, of both viral and non-viral delivery. Their limitation thus far has been that there really haven't been examples of potent in vivo delivery of cargos like gene editing agents uh, using virus-like particles. And so we recently set out to figure out why, and we identified several bottlenecks, molecular bottlenecks that seem to be standing in the way of virus-like particles uh, doing a much uh, more efficient job at delivering inside of an animal. And uh, we engineered solutions to each of these first three molecular bottlenecks, and we've identified a couple more since. Uh, and that resulted in what we call EVLPs, engineered virus-like particles, and as you uh, pointed out, uh, Keith John uh, and myself co-founded a company called Envelope to try to bring uh, uh, these technologies and other kinds of molecular delivery technologies, uh, next generation delivery technologies to patients. Well, that gets me uh, to the near wrapping up, and that is um, the almost imagination you could use about where all this can go in the future. Recently, I spoke to uh, a mutual friend, Fyodor Ernov, who talked about, wouldn't it be amazing if for people with chronic pain, you could just genome edit uh, neurons, um, their spinal cord, as you already touched on. Recently, um, Jennifer Doudna, who we both know, talked about editing to prevent Alzheimer's disease. Um, well, that may be a little far off in time, but at least people are talking about these things. That is... Uh, not, we're not talking about germline editing. We're just talking about somatic cell and being able to approach conditions that have previously been either unapproachable or of limited, you know, success and potential of curing. So um, this field continues to evolve, and you are, you know, uh, you and all your colleagues are a big part of how this has evolved as quickly as it has. What What are your thoughts about? Is there any, are there any bounds to the potential uh, in the longer term for, for genome editing? Right. It, it's, it's a great question because um, all of the early uses of gene editing in people are uh, appropriately focused on people who are at dire risk of having shorter lives or very poor quality of life, as it should be for a new kind of therapeutic, because 
the risks are high until we uh, continue to validate the clinical benefit of these uh, gene editing treatments. And therefore, we want to choose patients that have the highest, uh, that face the, the poorest prognosis, where the risk-benefit ratio favors benefit, favors treatment um, uh, as strongly as possible. But uh, your question, I think, very accurately highlights that our genome and changes to it determine far more than whether you have um, a serious genetic disorder like sickle cell disease or progeria or cystic fibrosis or um, familial hypercholesterolemia or Tay-Sachs disease. Uh, and being able to um, not just correct mutations that are associated with devastating genetic disorders, uh, but perhaps take control of our genomes in more sophisticated way that uh, you pointed out two examples that I think are very thought-provoking uh, to treat chronic pain permanently, uh, to uh, lower the risk of, of horrible diseases that uh, affect so many families, uh, devastating to economies worldwide as well, like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. The genetic risk factors that are the strongest genetic determinants of diseases like Alzheimer's disease are actually, uh, there are several that are known already. And uh, an interesting possibility for the future, it, it uh, isn't going to happen in the next few years, but it might happen you know, within the next 10 or 20 years, uh, might be to use uh, gene editing to precisely change some of those most grievous uh, alleles that are risk factors for Alzheimer's uh, disease, like ApoE4, uh, to change them to uh, the genetic forms that um, have normal or even reduced risk for Alzheimer's disease. That's a very tough clinical trial to run, um, but uh, you know, I'd say not any tougher than the dozens of most predominantly failed Alzheimer's clinical trials that have probably collectively accounted for hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. Oh, easily. Um, yeah. So, uh, and all of that speaks to the fact that Alzheimer's disease, for example, is an enormous burden on, on society uh, by every measure. Uh, so it's worth investing uh, and, and uh, major resources and taking major risks to try to uh, create uh, per perhaps preventative treatments that just lower our, our, risk globally. Um, getting there will require that these pioneering early clinical trials for gene editing um, uh, are smashing successes. I'm optimistic that they will be. There will be bumps in the road because there always are bumps in the road. Um, there will be uh, patients who uh, have downturns in their health and everyone will wonder whether those patients had a downturn because of the gene editing treatment they received and, and ascertaining whether that's the case will be very important. But as these trials uh, continue to progress and as, as they continue hopefully on this quite positive trajectory to date, it's tempting to imagine a future where we can use precise gene editing methods. Um, for example, you can install a variety using prime editing, a variety of of alleles that naturally occur in people that reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, uh, like the 
the mutation that 0.1% of Icelandic people and almost nobody else has in amyloid precursor protein, changing alanine 673 to threonine. Um, it's, it's very thought-provoking, and I don't think uh, society is, is ready now to take that step. But I think if things continue to proceed on this promising trajectory, it's inevitable because arguably the defining trait of our species is that we use every ounce of our talents and our gifts and our resources and our creativity to try to improve our, our, our lives and those of our children. And I don't think if we have ways of treating genetic diseases or even of reducing grievous genetic disease risk, uh, that we will be able to not, uh, to sit on our hands and not take uh, steps towards that kind of future, so long as those technologies continue to be validated in the clinic as being safe and efficacious. It's, you know, I, I teach a gene editing class and I walk them through a slippery slope at the end of five ethics cases, starting with progeria, where most people would say, you know, having a single C to T mutation in one gene that you, by definition, didn't inherit from mom or dad, it just happened spontaneously, that gives you an average lifespan of 14 and a half years and strongly affects other aspects of the quality of your life and your family's life, that if you can change, as we did in animals, that T back into a C and correct the disease and rescue many of the phenotypes and extend lifespan, that that's an ethical use of gene editing. Um, treating genetic deafness is the second case. It's a little bit uh, a little bit more complicated because many people in the deaf community don't view deafness as a disability. Um, it's at least a more subjective uh, situation than progeria. Uh, but then there are other cases like changing APOE4 to APOE3 or even APOE2, the lower than normal risk of Alzheimer's disease, installing that Icelandic mutation in amyloid precursor protein that uh, substantially lowers risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and then finally, you can, uh, I always provoke a healthy debate in the class at the end by pointing out that um, in the 1960s, one of the long distance cross, cross country alpine skiing records was set by um, a, a man um, who had a naturally occurring mutation in his EPO receptor, his erythropoietin receptor, uh, so that his body always thought he was on EPO, uh, as if he were dosing on EPO, although that was, of course, before the era of EPO dosing was really possible. Um, but it was just a naturally occurring mutation in this case in his family. Um, and, um, you know, when I first started teaching this class, uh, most students could accept treating, uh, uh, using gene editing to treat progeria, but, but very few were willing to go even past that, even to genetic deafness, certainly not to changing APOE risk factors for Alzheimer's. Um, nowadays, the, I'd say the 50% vote point is somewhere between case three and case four. Uh, most people are actually say, yeah, especially since they have family members who've been through Alzheimer's disease. Uh, if they are APOE4, some of them are APOE4, APOE4, why not? Uh, why not change that to APOE3 or even APOE2? Um, or as one student um, challenged the class this year, if you were born with APOE2, would you want to change it to APOE3 so you could be more normal? <laughs> uh, most people would say, no, there's no way I would do that. Um, uh and and for the first time this year, there were there there were one or two students who actually even defended 
the idea of putting in a mutation in erythropoietin receptor to, um, you know, increase their endurance under low oxygen conditions. Uh, of course, it's also presumably useful if you ever, God forbid, are treated uh, with a cancer chemotherapeutic. Normally, you get erythropoietin to try to uh, restore some of, to, to treat some of the anemia that can result. Um, and uh, this this student was making a case, well, you know, why, why wouldn't we, if, if this is a naturally occurring mutation that's been shown to benefit uh, certain uh, uh, people doing certain things? Uh, I don't think that's a general societal view, and I'm a little bit skeptical we'll ever get, you know, widespread acceptance of case number five. But, uh, but I think all of it is a healthy, stimulates a healthy discussion around um, the surprisingly um, gentle continuum between disease treatment, disease prevention, and what some would call human improvement. Um, and uh, used to be that even the, the word human improvement was sort of an anathema. I think now at least the students in my class um, are starting to rethink what, what does that really mean? Um, are we, aren't we improving ourselves a number of ways, genetically and otherwise, by virtue of our lifestyles, by virtue of who we choose to procreate with? Um, so it's, an, it's a really interesting debate. And I think um, the, the rapid development and now clinical progression and now uh, approval, regulatory approval of gene editing drugs uh, will play a central role in this discussion. No question. I mean, I also just to touch on the switch from APOE4 to E2, you would get a t potential twofer of lesser risk for Alzheimer's and longer lifespan. So, I mean, there's a lot of things here. The thing that uh, got me years ago, I mean, this is many years ago, at a meeting with George Church, and he says, we're going to just um, edit 60 genes and then we can do all sorts of xeno pig transplants you know, and, you know, forget the, the problem of donors. And it's happening now. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he used a base editor to edit hundreds of genes at once, if not thousands. Yeah, so of that's why I mean, it's just, viruses. yeah, no, it's just extraordinary. And I think people um, need to be aware that um, it's that, that opportunities here, as you say, with potential um bumps along the way unquestionably uh, is uh, almost limitless. So this has been a master class, uh, thanks to you, David, uh, in where we are, where we're headed uh, in genome editing at a very um, uh, extraordinary time where we've really seen things click. And I just want to also add that you're going to be here uh, with a conference in La Jolla in January, I think, uh, on uh, base and prime editing. Is that right? Uh, so for those who listeners who are into this topic, uh, maybe they can uh, also hear the latest. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more between now and uh, next next uh, well several weeks from now. Uh, at yeah, your it's a conference on on uh, it's the fifth international conference on base and prime editing and associated enzymes. I <laughs> think the somewhat baroque name. Uh, and I will at least be giving a virtual talk there. It actually overlaps with a talk I'm giving at Rockefeller that time. Uh, okay. But well, I am speaking at the conference either in person or virtually. Yeah. Well, anytime we get to hear from you and uh, the field, of course, it's enlightening. So thanks so much for joining. And oh, thank uh, you for, I, I for having me. And, and uh, thank you also for all of your, uh, I think, really important public service in, in connecting properly the ground truth about science and vaccines and other things to 
uh, to people. I think that's very much appreciated by scientists like myself. Oh, thanks, David.